Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia-focused, meaning that we are going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law, but occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right, now to the studio. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. We have an episode that's something that's a matter of great interest to judges, but it may be particularly relevant during this COVID judicial emergency. That's right. Today, we're going to discuss statutory speedy trial demands. Yeah, this topic has been of great interest during the pandemic, and we're going to try to address the impact that the six judicial emergency declarations have had on statutory speedy trial demands and make it a little simpler to understand. Tane, we keep saying statutory speedy trial demands, statutory speedy trial demands, and making a point to use that phrase statutory. Tell everybody why we're doing that annoying thing. (laughs) Well, you know, Wade, there is a difference between a statutory speedy trial demand and a speedy trial demand based on the Constitution's guarantee of a speedy and public trial under the Sixth Amendment. The legal analysis applicable to a statutory speedy trial demand is very different from the analysis associated with a constitutional speedy trial demand. So the statutes that we keep talking about under the statutory speedy trial demand are OCGA 1710, 170, and 171. You know, we're always willing to consider topics that our listeners suggest, and this is a specific topic uh, that was one of those suggested by one of our loyal listeners, and you know who you are out there. But if you yourself have an idea for a topic, please contact us in several different ways. That's right. You can contact us by email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com or through our website, goodjudgepod.com. We remain willing and able to receive all those great ideas that you have been sharing of late. We really do appreciate it. And it helps us come up with some content that you find more fulfilling or more necessary in, in your following of this podcast. Absolutely. So now let's talk about statutory speedy trial demands, but let's begin at the beginning, the motion and the time for filing. Is it better so, to begin at the beginning usually? Sometimes I like to count backwards, but that's just me. So go ahead. Let's talk a little bit about how that motion for a stat to invoke the statutory speedy trial demand has to look. You know, back in the day, there might be somebody, I don't know, when I was a DA, we had these issues, an ADA, we had these issues, where somebody would stick one of these in a stack of motions. I don't know if you yeah. had that, but uh, that's a problema. Yeah, people used to uh, basically hide the balls, kind of like hiding things during discovery. They would just file about 20 motions, and right in between there would be a one-paragraph motion uh, in between all those other motions that would ask for a speedy trial. So, So they have to identify the statute, right? They do. They have to identify the specific statute, and the motion itself must be separate. Uh, In other words, you can't put it in your discovery motion or bury it in in the text of another motion. It has to be its own freestanding motion, and it has to make reference to the statute. 
And, you know, you got to serve the prosecutor and the trial judge. If no trial judge has yet been assigned, you have to assign, you have to serve the chief judge of the circuit. So there are, you've got to have some notice drawn to this motion for it to be a valid motion. You know, it's, it, when they, when they talk about the motion for a statutory speedy trial demand, there's some time limits in when that motion has to be filed to be valid, aren't there, Tang? Yeah, absolutely. A statutory uh, demand must be filed in the same term of court as indictment or the next succeeding term of court unless special permission from the judge is granted. You know, Tane, I'm imagining that during this COVID pandemic, coming out of it, I guess, there are going to be some people, some defendants who are going to ask for that special permission that they've been in jail excellent amount of time and for basically the preceding six, eight, ten months, however long it is before we're allowed to start conducting jury trials again, they are going to to ask for that special permission. You know, one of the things that has been a part of all of the six judicial emergency orders, and I think is going to remain in place even after we're allowed to begin trying cases again, is a suspension of the time limits associated with speedy trials. That means both on the good, both on the filing end, those time limits, and on the impact end. In other words, when they the people must be must be tried or acquitted, and that's really sort of the big thing about these motions is that failure to comply with this, with the statutory scheme results in an acquittal, not just a continuance, but an acquittal. That's correct. So that's a big deal. I think one of the things that's important for our listeners, particularly those of you who are judges or maybe even prosecutors who may be listening out there to understand, though, is in order for the time limits to count, jurors must be shown to have been impaneled and sworn during the term in order for that term to count. So Looking at the language of all of the judicial emergency orders that we've had, all six of them, jurors actually could not be impaneled and sworn during that period of time. So you can't just reject all of the statutory speedy trial demands you get post-COVID out of hand saying they're out of time because they're not. They're probably not going to be if they're filed right away because we haven't impaneled any jurors during those period of time, those periods of time. So impaneled and sworn, what does that mean? Well, it, it may seem straightforward, but there have been a lot of different people who have interpreted this differently. And finally, our Supreme Court has determined that the phrase impaneled means jurors who have been summoned, have appeared for service, and have not yet been discharged. So the burden is on the defendant in one of these motions for acquittal to prove that there were qualified jurors impaneled and qualified to try the case during the term that they're talking about, the term of court that they're talking about. Failed to do so would result in that term not counting. And I'm using the, the air quotes there, counting. Now, we've talked about their two different statutes. Tane, in your mind, how do you differentiate 170 from 171? I mean, what's the thing? Is it is it the offense? Well, it, it it's capital versus non-capital cases, right, Wade? That's right. 171 is capital cases. 170 is everything else. And we're at the end of our podcast, we're going to talk a little bit, uh, excuse me, end of our episode, uh, 
We're going to talk a little bit about what is a capital offense and what is not a capital offense. But under 170, the defendant must be tried in the term of court in which the demand was filed or the next succeeding term. Correct, Tane? That's exactly right. And uh, we love to read statutes on our podcast, and so that's why we, why we read that one to you. Every time a statute is cited, an angel gets his wings. See, and we just love to be a part of that. And then you also have uh, OCGA Section 17-10-171, which is for capital cases. And when a, when a speedy trial demand is filed under that statute, it must be tried before three full terms have expired since the term in which the demand was filed. The Tain. quote unquote. Tain, sorry to interrupt. The statute doesn't say three. No, it actually says the language of it says more than two. Well, more than two can mean three, it can mean four, it can mean five. I could continue counting ad infinitum, but it means more than two, which is what it says. And there is some case law that was really litigated this to to an extreme that said that more than two must mean more than two. So the minimum would be three. Now, there are circuits, lots of circuits, that have two terms a year. So three terms would be a year and a half. And that would be a speedy trial, would be within a year and a half of the motion being filed, again, with the motion having been filed, having been filed either in the term in which the case was indicted or the next succeeding term. So 171 gives you three terms or more than two. 170 gives you the term in which the motion was filed and the next succeeding term. So, Tane, you know, you've got a lot of judges in your circuit. We do. Ten. More than me right. in fewer counties, but but I'm not complaining. Sure you are. So let me ask you this. If Judge Leonard had jurors assigned to him during the term that were capable of trying them, they were impaneled and sworn, but you didn't have any that term or for the rest of that term, let's say. That term counts, right? Yes, it does. Absolutely. Because the circuit had jurors that, that were there and capable of being impaneled and serving on that jury to try that case. And that's all that really matters. And folks, if you're ever looking for any of this case law, you can find it. We'll post it on our website, goodjudgepod.com, where you can find it so that we don't read law to you because... Reading law during a podcast is not awesome. So there you go. So very true. Words of wisdom for us all to live by. Um, so Wade, I know, I know this is kind of crazy and, and you might think it's really elemental, but I have to admit that it was a little while after I was on the bench that I figured out exactly how our terms of court were determined for our jurisdiction. So again, at the risk of another angel getting its wings, how do we figure out uh, where, uh, where uh, circuits, the, the terms of court for each circuit are found? Where is that? Is that an angel getting its wings? You just got crickets. Oh, oh, okay. It's in a single statute, Tane. Every time a statute is cited, an angel gets his wings. OCGA section 15-6-3. Now, Tane, you have one county. 
I do. But it's the terms of court in that county have been the same forever. You are not like fortunate like me where I have three counties, all three of which have different, you know, they're not both, none of them are both six months, both three months, both one month, both two months. I mean, right. Tane, come on now. It took you a long time to figure that out. Yeah. And, and the reason is this, and I, and I still couldn't tell you for sure and, and, and be sure that I'm right. Uh, our terms of court are essentially two month terms, but they start on like the second Tuesday of the first Monday of each day after Labor Day or something weird. Exactly. Like that. Yeah. So, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. So anyway, that's why you need to look at the statute to make sure you understand what the terms of court are. Let's talk about waiver right quick. You want you want, let's let's yeah. let's handle that right quick because jump on that. There can be express waivers where whether the defendant knew the lawyer was waiving the speedy trial demand, the statutory speedy trial demand that the lawyer previously filed or not, it's really not relevant. What is relevant is whether or not the lawyer actually expressly waived that statutory speedy trial demand. But it can I mean and I think those are fairly self-evident. What is a little more uh, confusing or dicey is when a there's an allegation that by conduct the defendant has impliedly waived that statutory speedy trial demand. For example, there was a period of time where a defendant would possibly be doing a sentence in the DOC, the Georgia Department of Corrections, and they said, well, you couldn't be ready for trial because you were in the DOC. Well, that that case law was was sort of examined with some specificity in light of the fact that the court can issue a what we call a CPO production order, court production order. Do y'all call it a CPO? What do y'all call it? Yeah, CPO or court production order. The um, trial court does have the authority to compel the defendants and present defendants presence even from the DOC. And so the passage of two terms without doing so and having the defendant tried would result in a discharge under 17.7.170. Even though that case dealt with 170, there's no reason to think it wouldn't also equally apply to 171. That's right. One of the uh, and one of the more, uh, I guess, the easier uh, waiver situations that that happens with some frequency is defendant asks for a speedy trial. And then at the very next calendar call, when the case is ready to be called for trial, the lawyer says, Judge, I need a continuance because fill in the blank. Um, You can't ask for a speedy trial and then actively avoid having the speedy trial. You know, there used to be a time where lawyers thought they had to stand up at calendar call in every term and say, we're ready for trial in Smith and state versus Smith 171 or whatever, you know, case number, whatever, 2009 R48, even if that case wasn't on the calendar, that's not the law. You don't have to be at the calendar announcing ready. All that must happen is that the, there must not be an affirmative act to delay that um that that speedy trial from occurring that's right 
And there could be some other waivers, too, and there's some case law out there and some statutes on this. But, for example, uh, if the defendant announces ready for trial, uh, you know, files a speedy trial demand, announces ready for trial, and then actively prohibits a key witness from being able to be able to attend the trial, that may affect it, too. There's some cases out there with respect to some weird circumstances like that. Absolutely. Wade, let's talk about the difference between the two statutes and uh, and let's talk about, uh, for example, what capital offenses are. And it, look, folks, it's not just a case in which the death penalty is being sought. OK, I'm just I'm just I'm saying that because that's just between you and me, but that's not what it is. All right. So let's do a little history. You want to do a little history? Let's do a little history. When the death penalty statute was enacted. Georgia defined certain crimes as those that could, for which a death penalty could be um, imposed. Sought. And the U.S. Supreme Court from Furman forward basically said, no, 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 no. Those, those crimes may be heinous and whatnot, but you can't get the death penalty unless there is a murder. But Georgia's statutory scheme from the very beginning defined things as capital offenses versus non-capital offenses. And so there became this this problem. I don't know if that's the right word. This the situation where we have capital offenses, but you can't get the death penalty for them. And for probably a myriad of reasons, nobody has ever undertaken to fix all of that. So the offenses that for which a that are capital offenses, as you define that term, especially here under 171. And it would also be the same offenses that would be relevant to considerations of bond, etc. Are those cases that when the death penalty statute was enacted, the death sentence could be sought or imposed. Do you have that list in front of you? Yeah, they include, uh, in addition to the the current cases for which death penalty can be uh, can be imposed, they include things like rape. Uh, and we have the case citation for you in our uh, outline at goodjudgepod.com. Uh, but they, they include rape. They include malice murder, of course. Uh, they also include armed robbery. And they also include kidnapping with bodily injury. And so when you're determining whether the offense will be considered a capital offense, you need to make sure that you look at a case called Cleary C-L-E-A-R-Y versus the state, 258 Georgia 203, 1988 case. Reading law during a podcast is not awesome. So true. In that case, the uh, Supreme Court, the, the court said exactly what we've just told you, that it's those statutes for which a death penalty could be imposed back when the death penalty was enacted. Yes, sir. So, Tane, you know, you talk about things that happen all the time, and this happens to me all the time. <laughs> now, on our speedy trial memo, I guess, on page six of that, we talk about something that inevitably happens to me, usually in pencil and in very strange block writing. A defendant files a pro se speedy trial demand now, if that person is, in fact, pro se, that's completely valid, right? Sure, absolutely. Doesn't have to be in ink, doesn't have to be typed. I mean, it could be in pencil, it's fine. 
But let's remember, it's going to be a really odd circumstance where a criminal defendant in a felony case is going to be representing himself. You would have had to go through and do all the necessary procedures in order to allow him to proceed pro se. So, you mean, so, you mean, wait, wait, to have a Feretta hearing? Yes, exactly. Um, you, you would have had to do that first. But, but nonetheless, yes, if it's a valid pro se defendant representing himself, he can ask for speedy trial. But, but what if he's represented by counsel and you get exactly one of those? That's exactly what we were going to talk about. So you have a defendant that is represented by counsel who files a motion, any kind of motion. But since we're talking about speedy trial demands, we'll talk about a speedy trial demand motion, a statutory speedy trial demand motion. That is a nullity. I think it's called unauthorized and without effect, according to the cases. But basically, the fact that a defendant who is represented by counsel has no right to separately file a pro se motion, that's really clear in our law. It happens a lot with appellate issues, but it would be equally applicable here, correct? That's right. And and technically, because it is a legal nullity, you don't have to act on it. You don't have to do anything. You don't even really have to acknowledge it because it doesn't have uh, it, it, it is without form or substance uh, in the law. What I will say is with respect to speedy trial demands, it's not a bad idea to enter a very short one-line order saying defendant filed a statutory speedy trial demand while he was represented by counsel, which is a nullity and the court will not does not recognize it or something along those lines. Not a bad idea uh, to cover your basis in that way. I'm not saying it's required. There's no case out there that says you have to do that, but not a bad idea. Folks, if you have a unique factual scenario, take a look at our memo that we are going to file at goodjudgepod.com because what you're going to find is there are a couple of, of unanswerable questions. For example, in 17.7.170, there's a provision about what should happen if the case ends in a mistrial, but that doesn't exist in 171. I don't know why. I mean, I'm sure that, that some really awesome lawyer will figure out a reason to argue that to you, but there are some differences. And if you have, for example, someone who is claiming that they are, uh, do a special, that they file a special plea of insanity, the time that that's pending doesn't count. But what about if the defendant is not available for trial because he is at the Georgia regional being evaluated? I mean, there are all kinds of cases and, and, I know this is not true, but it seems like if it could have happened, it has happened and it's been decided in a case that's in our memo. So, folks, we do have a chart too. Uh, some other things that are going to be uh, helpful for you there. So please do go and uh, see that uh, memo that we have at goodjudgepod.com. So, Tane, in a, in a way that's not common for us, why don't we wrap this one up in less than, I don't know, an hour and a half or so. <laughs> that is pretty unusual way to feel uncomfortable, but let's go ahead and do it. So listen, folks, remember, statutory speedy trial demands are different from constitutional speedy trial demands. They have different law and they're analyzed under different case, cases as well. If you have a constitutional speedy trial demand motion, you're going to look at Barker v. Wingo. Otherwise, you're going to have a statute that you need to refer to uh, for under the statutory speedy trial uh, analysis. During this judicial emergency, the S Chief Justice has included in every single judicial emergency declaration a provision that said specifically that the time limits associated with statutory speedy trial demands are suspended. We anticipate that that is going to continue 
even after we resume jury trials. The statement has been made that the language is going to essentially say, if any term of court was interrupted by the judicial emergency, that term would not count under 1710, I mean, 170 or 171. We haven't seen that. That hasn't been drafted. It hasn't been circulated, but that has been sort of the, the general school of thought. We'll learn more about those as we get the future judicial emergency declarations and when those are all published. That's right. Also remember OCGA section 17-10-170, which applies to non-capital cases, and OCGA section 17-10-171, which applies to capital cases, both require a specific separate motion for speedy trial. They both require that the motion be filed within certain time limits that are defined in those statutes. And both of them also require that the case subsequent to the proper filing of those motions must be tried within certain time limits uh, once the motion is properly filed. So refer to the statutes for those cases. Folks, thank you as always for tuning in to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And this, as always, is the Good Judgment Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This podcast was originally the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, who is the executive director of ICJE. Special thanks to the University of Georgia College of Law and specifically to Mr. Jim Henneberger. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, for editing out as much of our stupidity as he can. But he can't get it all. We are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead NJO, that's New Judge Orientation, for new Superior Court Judges and for their support of this project. The opinions expressed on this podcast are our own and do not reflect the opinions of CSCJ, ICJE, the UGA College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. These are barely the opinions of Wade Padgett and Tang Kell, so we definitely aren't speaking for anyone else. You can contact us on our website, goodjudgepod.com. Or send us an email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. So, Tane, I guess we better bang the gavel on this episode. Anything else you feel like we need to say? Only, remember everybody, CDC guidelines require you to wash your hands 20 seconds after podcasting.